Hello, and welcome to episode 29 of the Karma Sense Foodcast. I'm Davey H., and this episode is apropos of nothing. That's the Spinners performing their hit, The Rubber Band Man. It has nothing to do with anything. It has nothing to do with food. It has nothing to do with the show. It is apropos of nothing. I can't say why I like it. It's to me as the show Everyone Loves Raymond is to Paul Rudd from The 40-Year-Old Virgin. And this is episode 29 in the Foodcast, an odd number. That means I fly solo and try to pull together the flotsam and jetsam that crosses my virtual desk and share it with you. We talk about how to measure your success when trying to reach a goal like losing weight. My conclusions and next steps after observing the processing of a slaughtered hog as I did in episode 28. We learn whether tilapia is something you should stop eating. And I point out a few good websites other than karmasensewellness.com for learning about food, cooking, and nutrition. It all has to do with food and nutrition, but otherwise, it's apropos of nothing. This is The Foodcast, a magazine format type comedy information news show about food. That's pretty much the only constraint and subject matter I put on this show. And people eat food for lots of reasons, and they may decide to eat differently because they want to achieve something. That thing often takes the shape in form of goals. I want to lose weight or get stronger or lower my blood pressure or something. If you want to attain a goal, you have to be smart about it. Now, when most office drones hear the words smart and goals within close proximity of one another, they begin to break out in hives. Because this reminds them of annual review time, the one and only time of year a manager is expected to do something to help a member of staff improve. It's a passive-aggressive dance in which managers find new and creative ways to say the word mediocre while the employee squirms, fidgets, and ignores whatever's being said until such time that the manager distills an entire year's effort into a single-digit number that will determine the employee's raise, bonus, promotion, and access to prestige Slack channels. Some genius a decade or so ago decided to upgrade this whole process by putting the burden of creating SMART goals on the manager and employee. And in this usage, the word SMART is an acronym. It's not intended to mean the opposite of a stupid goal. In fact, SMART goals can and often are stupid. Let me explain. In the vernacular of knowledge work, a euphemism for office drones, the SMART acronym stands for a goal that is specific, measurable, action-oriented, realistic, and time-based. And this is a laudable goal for a goal but it really only works for jobs that are transactional in nature, such as making widgets, answering customer service calls, and inventing new bizarre Oreo flavors. But for, (laughs) I said but for, but for knowledge workers, if we tie our staff's performance appraisal to a SMART goal that says, for example, get your TPS report in every Friday at noon, we'll get a TPS report every Friday at noon. It may be a crappy TPS report with the wrong cover sheet and everything, but the goal will be met. 
Meanwhile, Chicago could be burning to the ground, but the employee totally misses it. Preventing that fire wasn't one of the SMART goals. And if you knew enough at the time to put don't let Chicago get caught on fire in the SMART goals, then you wouldn't have put Mrs. O'Leary's cow so close to the lantern in the first place. Instead, for the knowledge worker, we need to agree on goals that allow for flexibility, creativity, risk-taking, and growth. And that's not very acronym-friendly. But SMART goals definitely have a place if you want to attain your vision of ideal health. And now that I'm done bitching about my previous career, let's talk about measuring progress when you work with a doctor, nutrition coach, or personal fitness professional. It helps to know the ins and outs about the way progress against goal can be measured before your first meeting so you can steer your partner in health in the right direction. So let's explore some possibilities. Regardless of who may be helping or urging you to improve your health, He or she should drive you to select a critical few set of health-oriented goals you want to achieve. Most of your time with this person should be spent working towards these goals. Some people have a very clear idea what they want to achieve. 10% body fat, lose 40 pounds, get my cholesterol in the healthy range. Other people have a more vague notion. Look good in a bathing suit, lose weight, eat healthfully. Regardless of which category you fall into, your partner in health should work with you to identify specific metrics that you can track on an ongoing basis to ensure you're moving in the right direction. Here's a fairly exhaustive list of ways you can measure progress against these goals. And don't worry about taking notes. I have a snappy and detailed table on the show notes because tables are how I roll. I go with a simple and well-understood option first, which is to weigh yourself on a scale. There's no better way to judge weight loss. The problem is... That scale doesn't always tell the true picture. It doesn't indicate what kind of weight change may have occurred. You don't know if the weight change is because you're retaining or losing more water, you ingested or eliminated more or less food. That weight change is due to change in body composition, such as change in lean mass or fat on the body. Furthermore, scales can vary in accuracy from day to day. If you do want to use the scale to measure your progress, always weigh yourself at the same time of day. If you choose to only weigh yourself weekly or monthly or something, always choose the same day of the week and month. This ensures the best insight into how you're trending. Research shows that people who weigh themselves are more successful at reaching their desired weight. But you're not in, and this is highly subject to how one emotionally responds to the number on the scale. If you can't handle the fluctuations in a detached way and changes in an undesirable direction causes you to give up, don't weigh yourself often or at all. Choose a different way of measuring. Moving on to a more subjective measurement, there's just asking the simple question, how do you feel? And working with some kind of constant scale like 1 to 10. This is a measurement that works for people who just want general improvements in health, like having more energy with no specific endpoint in mind. People who listen to Foodcast episode 27, the nuts to soup episode, know that the concept of how one feels is a qualia, which means it's near impossible to relate to someone else or to break it down into some smaller, more specific concept. The bottom line is it's subject to bias and all sorts of confounding factors. You might just convince yourself you're feeling better when you're not. And actually, there's nothing wrong with that. There is something wrong if you're changing the number because you're trying to please or respond to a third party. If you usually sit at around a 6 and your goal is to be a consistent 9 on the how-I-feel scale, be sure your coach isn't strong in the force. 
else he or she will just tell you you're nine and you'll believe it. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. There are other ways to get to this same evaluation, like asking the question, how do you feel, and limiting the answer to one adjective. But you get the idea. The next measurement is the body mass index, or BMI. This is a popular one with physicians because BMIs in the overweight and obese range are often predictors of health issues. You calculate BMI by dividing your weight in kilograms by the square of your height. For the math challenge, there are tons of calculators available through the Google machine. BMI's advantage is that it takes into account what a healthy weight would be at any given height. The problem with BMI is it ignores body composition, so that someone built like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, including Dwayne The Rock Johnson, whose cooking I can always smell and the next president of the United States, is technically obese. Conversely, there are the skinny fat people who make the cut for weight, but 40% of that weight is body fat. This isn't a healthy state, but it's a common occurrence for people whose diet consists of cinnamon bun Oreos for breakfast, peanut butter Oreos for lunch, Swedish fish Oreos for dinner, and birthday cake Oreos for snack. Because all those Oreo flavors really do exist. Since BMI is linked to your weight, this will change as often as your weight changes. Next is something I'll call body part girth. That is, measuring the circumference of different body parts. At a minimum, this would be the waist, but important information pops out for measuring the chest, hips, upper arms, and upper thighs. The dirty little secret is that waist measurement is a better indicator of health than BMI. For this, just divide your waist circumference by your height. A range of 0.35 to 0.5 is good, although slightly smaller at the top range is better for women. Tracking body part circumference works better than measuring weight on a scale because it gives hints as to the type of weight you're losing. Most weight loss or gain around the middle is going to be fat. But suppose for now you weren't tracking circumference and you were using weight on a scale as your metric and that you didn't see any change, or even worse, weight went up. Would you feel differently if at the same time you found out that you lost an inch or two around the waist? And suppose you measured your chest, arms, and legs too and found out they grew a little too. If you lose inches around the waist and gain in those other areas, it's very likely that you exchange fat for lean tissue, muscle. Now how does it make you feel about what happened on the scale? Another advantage is that a pro can often tell what adjustments may be needed in diet or exercise based on where you're losing weight and where you're retaining weight. So for example, if a client of mine loses inches along the thighs but not the waist, it's possible that there's an imbalance of the stress hormone cortisol and we may want to look at ways to reduce stress. If a client's losing inches around the middle but not around the thighs, it could be excess estrogen or insufficient testosterone. I would recommend a physician visit if this were a concern. With measurements of girth, it's probably not worth checking more than once a month, certainly not more than every two weeks. There are special measuring tapes you can buy for less than 10 bucks that help you do these measurements one-handed. I have a link to one on the show notes. The next possible measurement is body composition. That is, what percent of body weight is made up of fat versus lean mass, which includes muscle, bones, and water. This might just be one of the most meaningful views into one's fitness. It's also one of the most complex to compute. There are three options. One I call all-in-one, and that involves a process that requires special and expensive equipment and trained people who can calculate your body fat percentage in one fell swoop. 
The equipment often has names like BodPod or DEXA scan. You may have heard of DEXA scans. It's one of the way doctors measure bone density for people at risk of poor skeletal health. DEXAs can also compute body fat percentage, so if you're getting a DEXA scan anyway, why not see if you can get that info from the test as well? Another all-in-one is called hydrostatic weighing, or underwater weighing. It involves a specially designed scale that weighs you while you're submerged in a swimming pool up to your neck. Your underwater weight and non-submerged weight is then plugged into a formula that calculates body fat percentage. This works really well, unless you have an abnormal amount of fat above the neck. And I assume that applies to someone like me, who's often referred to as a fathead. <coughs> These techniques all cost a lot of dough and are only available where the equipment's available. Another technique for calculating body fat percentage is with skin fold calipers. These are handheld mechanical devices that measure how much skin can be pinched around different areas of the body, including the front of the belly, the inner thigh, the muffin top, back part of armpit, front part of armpit, and musically sounding body parts such as the subscapularis and the suprailiac. The measurements are again plugged into a formula and this results in a body fat percentage. Although there's now some fancy equipment to dumb down the process so even I could do it, skin calipers require a lot of practice and training to use in order to get decently accurate measurements. It's also not something you can really do on your own self. But all in all, it's a pretty primitive process. The advantage is that it gives us coaching professionals additional information when looking to tweak a program. For example, if I see the skin folds decreasing in the front of the trunk, but there's still plenty of junk in the back of the trunk, we may want to dial down the carb intake. A final way to measure body fat percentage is to pay 20-40% to 40 more for your bathroom scale. If you have a scale that can do electric impedance testing, it can also estimate body fat percentage. Basically what these scales do is shoot an electric current up one leg and time how long it takes for the current to reach the bottom of your other foot. Then it calculates body composition from that. It's not painful. It's not that thrilling either. You feel nothing. The other thing about it is it's not accurate. My experience that it can be off by 5-10% to 10 or more. Not great, but not so bad if you're just watching the trend once you've established a baseline. With all methods other than the last one, electric impedance, it's not worth doing the tests more than every six months. Tops. Since electric impedance happens every time you step on the scale, you should expect your body composition to change every time your weight changes. Just don't expect the change to really mean anything. I offer up three more options. Take pictures of yourself down to your skivvies. Do four angles, front, back, and both sides. This is a monthly kind of thing. No other way is as dramatic a demonstration of changes in shape, and if appearance is a driver and why you're interested in the first place, all that really counts is how you look naked. If you're like me and 5% Neanderthal covered with hair, this technique won't tell you as much as you'd like unless you shave off the fuzz or remove it with some other medieval technique. It's me. Some. By the way, be careful where you store your pictures. The last two are similar in certain aspects, so I'll throw them together in case you're not as fascinated by the subject as I am. They are physical fitness tests and open paren, lab work and vital signs, closed paren. If your goal is to run a faster mile, do you run the mile faster? If your goal is to deadlift twice your body weight, how's it going? 
if your goal is to reduce your A1C or blood pressure. I think you get the picture. As I said, I have all this in a table. The table lists the method, describes it, rates it against a number of factors including convenience, cost, privacy. For example, skin fold calipers can get pretty intimate. Whether expertise is required, its accuracy, can you fudge the results? For example, you can suck in your gut before measuring, but it doesn't change your weight. And whether there are unrelated factors that can cause variation. I also suggest the best purpose for each measurement and provide other extraneous comments. When I die and people are trying to come up with what contribution I've made to society, this table may very well be my crowning achievement. Pretty sad, I know. There is a lot of information in that table. I think it'll be most usable around the time you've decided on some goal, an outcome you want to achieve, and you're trying to figure out a meaningful way to track progress. My plan is to use it with my clients to help establish expectations and to let them know that they have a choice in how we measure their progress. I want them to own these goals. Otherwise, I'll just get a crappy TPS report. Apropos nothing, mine is a short happy tale, which is a paraphrase from a favorite passage of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which is also apropos of nothing. In episode 28, Traceability, I talked a little bit about how my experience at the Hampshire Meat Processing Plant in West Virginia affected my attitude towards eating meat. It made me more mindful of the process, and while it hasn't turned me off meat because I'm still not convinced the 100% plant-based diet is morally superior, it did give me more respect for the sacrifice of the animals who become our food. So while I still work to be less dependent on animals for my personal nutrition, I also seek to make sure I do everything I can to reduce the amount of animal that's wasted. When I interviewed Ed Morgan, we briefly discussed this. I also went back to Taylor, my local butcher from Let's Meet on the Avenue in Alexandria, Virginia, to find out what parts of the hogs they have the most difficulty selling with the intent of learning about parts of the pig that are likely going to go to waste. We ended up having an email exchange, and here's what he said. After the common cuts, you're then left with organs. Not my favorite organs by a long shot. Or hams, jowls, trotters, tongues, hocks, shanks, or tails. For the moment, let's set organs aside. And I'll note here that jowls and hams are probably best cured. Curing jowls is particularly easy, and I've got a jowl turning into quanchale hanging in my laundry room as I type this. This might be something you can do, if Mrs. H is cool with meat hanging from the ceiling. So then you're left trying to figure out how much effort you want to put into this. The problem with offcuts is that they often require a long, transformative process. It's not difficult, really. It doesn't require any talent or training. Just patience. Trotters take the most work. They're best, in my opinion, 
braised, picked clean of bones, minced, seasoned, rolled into a tight cylinder, chilled, sliced, breaded, and pan-fried. Tongues can be quickly poached or confit, but then they need chilling, peeling, and searing. I'd go for either shanks and hocks or pigtails. I don't know how common pork shanks are in ethnic markets, but we can bring them in at Let's Meet. And you can apply just about any recipe for veal asso buco to make beautiful braised pork shanks. Tails? are They're a little more trouble, but they can also be simply braised, shredded, and served as a ragu over polenta or grits. Or you can bread them and fry them. So that's what Taylor told me. I asked a simple question. He gave me a nice detailed answer. This is a great kind of support you get when you know your butcher. Well, I was relieved Taylor gave me a reprieve on the organs, even though Ed Morgan thought sweetbreads were an excellent gateway offal. I was also amused by his story of curing his own guanciale. First of all, because it reminded me of episode 19 of the Foodcast, the Foodcast of lists, in which we learned commonly mispronounced words like guanciale. Secondly, the thought of my convincing Mrs. H to have me hang cured meat from the ceiling of our not terribly large home for the sake of my playing with my food should be reserved for an episode all its own. So what did I do instead? The one Taylor said is a little more trouble. Tails. Once I procured said tails, I asked Taylor to tell me more about the trouble I was about to undergo. He responded that his favorite way to treat them was a pain in the butt. Yee-haw! But it's for fried risotto balls or arancini, which I mispronounced arancini when discussing them with Ed in episode 28 because it wasn't food covered in the Foodcast of Lists episode. Add arancini to a long line of Italianish foods I mispronounced, such as gnocchi. Taylor went on to say the process of using hogtails to make arancini is fussy and gave me instructions short on detail. He said to poach the tails with a ton of lemon zest, garlic, and rosemary until they're soft and treadable. Cool and tread the meat, discarding bone and large chunks of skin and fat. He said that if I was so inclined, I can finely dice the skin fat and mix it back into the meat in reasonable amounts. Next step is to make risotto and chill it. You stuff the shredded pork into the chilled risotto and, and fashion them into stuffed risotto balls. You then fry it in preheated 350 degree oil or 175 degrees if you roll that way. Sprinkle your fried arancini with parsley and more lemon zest and salt if needed. I did a little research on my own and realized he probably skipped the step where you coat the risotto balls with breadcrumbs and that the oil should be deep enough to submerge the risotto balls. I'm comfortable in the kitchen, but I don't work a lot with complex pieces of meat and I've never deep fried before. I poached the tails and flavorings for a couple hours, shredding them as instructed. I saved the broth for who knows what reason, and it's sitting in a Tupperware container in the freezer. I followed a simple online recipe for risotto, let it cool, did the forming, heated up a pot of oil meant for high heat, and used a thermometer to regulate the temperature to about 350 degrees Fahrenheit. I inflicted the results on Mrs. H as an accompaniment to our dinner that night. Holy crap, they're good. And I didn't have to explain why a salted pig cheek was hanging over our washing machine. These arancini weren't that hard to do. You do need to tend to them, but I wouldn't say I was using advanced cooking skills to get there. I still have about a dozen left in the freezer. They're really rich, and not the type of thing I'd eat day to day, but I'll be proud to pull them out for guests if they're up to it. 
And when we're out in restaurants, arancini is not something I'm likely to order. But you have such a greater appreciation for food and the craft work it takes to make it right when you try and make it yourself. It's a bonus when it comes out well. Meanwhile, my other hog expert, Farmer Ed, said his favorite off-cut is smoked shanks in a pot of beans. That's something I've done before and it makes a delicious hearty meal. I'll be working on that this weekend when the temperatures are expected to dip and I'll be holed up watching college basketball. Making sure I'm using the less loved parts of the animal helps me come to better terms with what I eat. It's also a cost-effective way to get nutrition. Having access to like-minded experts, knowing who raises and prepares my food, well, that's just priceless. Apropos of nothing, that was Autobahn by Kraftwerk, one of the few Kraftwerk songs with lyrics. After hearing lead vocalist Rolf Hooter sing, you can kind of guess why they don't use lyrics often. Also apropos of nothing, listener Kate forwarded me a link to a webpage from hyperdojo.com with the headline, Why Health Experts Are Warning People to Stop Eating Tilapia. Stop in all caps. And it's true. Like the other day, I was at Applebee's and ordered the tilapia, you know, seasoned with six pepper blend, drizzled with spicy habanero mango glaze, and topped with chopped mango, cilantro, house-made pico de gallo, and fresh diced avocado, and served with citrus chili rice and steamed broccoli. And a gang of bad hombres, armed with stethoscopes from the hospital across the street, bolted into the restaurant, smacked me in the head, and changed my order to bacon ranch quesadillas stuffed with chicken, three cheese blend, chili spices, applewood smoked bacon, and ranch dressing, and served with house-made pico de gallo, sour cream, and ancho chili ranch at almost five times the calories. Why? Because it didn't contain any of that nasty tilapia stuff. I kid. Kate, this is a typical hysterical position of the healthy lifestyle militia and the health media. There's absolutely no room for nuance, only extremes. So let's review the three criterion I use to assess how open-minded I'll be on any online web article. First, extreme hyperbole test. This article fails that test as soon as I see that a vague shadowy group of health experts is warning people to STOP eating tilapia with STOP in all caps. But there's plenty of hyperbole in the actual copy of the article, too, like, quote, avoid tilapia at all cost, exclamation mark, unquote. Second comes the misspelling and grammar error test. The writer is really in love with ending sentences with colons. Quote, there are very few nutrients in tilapia, colon. Researchers at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine, go demon deacons, recently reported about the omega-3 fatty acid found in popular fish. That's one of many poorly constructed sentences spliced with a colon. Test 2 failed. Test 3 is over-the-top clickbait ad test. Hyperdojo is pretty mild with respect to these. They're there, but they don't contain unnaturally nice-looking people or people with bizarre deformities or other techniques urging you to click to the next page upon which you're inundated with videos you can't pause, buy now buttons, and invitations to click on even more enticing pages in a never-ending death spiral. Still, HyperDojo fails on two of the three tests, and that's enough to firmly pluck my bullcrap detector. Bottom line, 
be highly suspicious of a page like this. What does the article claim? Claim, tilapia has few desirable omega-3 fatty acids. And this is true. Compared to many other fish, including the list I provided in episode 23, Chazarai, tilapia doesn't provide that desirable and essential nutrient that's good for your heart and proves grandma was right that fish is brain food. Claim, there are loads, loads in uppercase, of omega-6 fatty acids, which is higher than what you find in hamburger and bacon. Ooh, bacon. True. But when nutrition experts encourage us to eat fewer burgers and less bacon, it's not because of omega-6 fatty acids. It's because of saturated fat and a link to processed meat and cancer, also covered in episode 23. Burgers and bacon have more saturated fat than tilapia. They also have more total fat. That's where the problem is. This is a bait and switch. No pun intended. Claim. Tilapia can cause Alzheimer's disease. This is true because omega-6 fatty acids cause inflammation, and chronic inflammation is a risk factor for Alzheimer's. But unless you're eating tilapia every day, I'll bet it's not the biggest source of omega-6 in your diet. And low intake of omega-6 creates other problems. Omega-6 fatty acids are critical to your immune system and helps your body heal when it's injured. They're an essential fatty acid, which means your body needs them to live, and that it can't make it itself, so you can only get it through the diet. Claim! Tilapia is the second most commonly farmed fish, and farmers can feed them anything, including pig poop! This is one of the few things I like about this article. The claim is misleading. I don't like that. But I do like that Hyperdojo worked in a poop reference. Anyway, it's true. Some farmers are more interested in mass-producing cheap protein than they are in creating nutritious food. Not all, but quite a few. And those that do prefer mass-producing, I hardly even count as farmers. They're just assembly line workers. Claim. Tilapia could cause cancer based on what it's fed. Their diets and living conditions could cause a buildup of dioxin, a known carcinogen. And this is true of many farm fish and wild fish extracted from polluted waters. So, as with many articles of this type, there's a lot of truth. But when you apply the legal standard of truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, things start to fall apart. Kate, in the scheme of things, tilapia is a crap fish because it's easy and cheap to produce. About a mile from my house, there's a small tilapia farm. I mean, really small. They sell full-grown fish swimming around in a tank that's 12 cubic feet, or 340 liters, and holds about 30 tilapia. And each of these fish is about 10 inches long and 4 inches high, or 25 by 10 centimeters. These fish have no room to swim or turn around. And forget about pig poop. They're eating their own poop. And to the extent fish can look happy, these guys look bummed. It's not a humane situation. I put a short movie of this exact tilapia tank I was talking about that's right down my street in the show notes. Really, anyone can grow tilapia. There's loads of websites teaching city dwellers how to humanely raise them on their balconies. But my local tilapia mill and what Hyper Dojo describes isn't too different from what goes on with other factory farm foods, whether beef, pork, chicken, or so on. Tilapia is also a crap fish when you compare its nutrition to other fish. So, let's put all this in perspective of the real world. You're on a road trip on the interstate, and you need to eat. 
Your options are the usual fast food, and if you're lucky, a fast casual joint. And if you're really lucky, there's a good old-fashioned Jersey diner or pizza joint that's not listed on the exit sign, but assume for now there isn't. You go for the fast casual because you like your odds of finding something healthy. Your only seafood option is blackened tilapia. Maybe there's fried shrimp, there's plenty of burgers and fries and meat-like substances. Are you really heading for nutrition disaster if you opt for the tilapia over the Pizzeria Uno whole hog burger? Do you really need to stop eating tilapia with all uppercase? I don't think so. If you like tilapia and you want to keep eating it, look for tilapia that carries the seal from the Aquaculture Stewardship Council, or ASC. Fish with the ASC seal is the best indicator of safe and responsibly raised fish. As with most seals and certifications, the lack of the seal doesn't mean the product isn't responsibly raised. Small producers may meet or exceed ASC needs, but they can't afford the certification process. That hipster couple in apartment 4B with a kiddie pool stocked with half a dozen tilapia may be feeding their fish biodynamic champagne and vegan caviar, but they just don't want to deal with the man at ASC. But hope isn't a strategy in this case. If you don't see the ASC seal and you don't know the tilapia farmer, your fish is probably a poop eater. Another option is to choose a similarly mild whitefish like hake or catfish. They're often available wild, and when farmed, they tend to be more available with the ASC seal. And catfish especially happen to be a decent source of omega-3 fatty acids. Hey Kate, thanks for asking. Apropos of something, I suppose, Cav Esquire asked me what some decent irreverent websites would be for someone who wants to migrate to a healthier diet and take on a few more of the cooking chores. We talked a little further, because you don't want to give advice like that without getting the current and desired state. It's an annoying habit, but it's just how us health coaches roll. With that, I made the following three suggestions. First, Thug Kitchen at thugkitchen.com. This site bills itself as, and I'll reinterpret the expletives because the sensor beep I sometimes do gets old. Anyway, Thug Kitchen bills itself as the only website dedicated to verbally abusing you into a healthier diet. That's where this internet bus driver just dropped your tuchus off. Welcome to Thug Kitchen, mofo. Yeah, it's essentially the dick's last resort of cooking websites, only you may tolerate the shtick slightly longer, and there's not a single tilapia recipe. The site goes on to say its aim is to help your narrow dietary mind explore some gosh darn options so that you can look and feel like a freaking champ. We hope readers reconsider what kind of behaviors they attribute to people who try to eat healthy. Everyone deserves to feel a part of our push towards a healthier diet, not just people with disposable incomes who speak a certain way. So we're here to help cut through the bullcrap. Promoting accessibility and community are important as all get out around here at Thug Kitchen. We got a big table, and everyone's welcome to it. And by healthy, this guy means plant-based, vegan. Cav isn't a vegan, but he wants to eat more plants. Here's a sample of Thug Kitchen's most recent recipes. Tex-Mex queso, and yes, it's a queso-like dip without any dairy. Cold mango soba noodle salad. Strawberry oat bars, and spaghetti and bean balls. The instructions for Thug's recipes are simple and loaded with disrespect. The strawberry oat bars open up with the following description. How the fudge is Nature's Valley still putting crumbs in bags and selling them as breakfast bars? Shh! It's disrespectful, 
and a dry sponge would taste better than those crumb catastrophes. Not our bars. Perfect for on-the-go snacking, packed with fiber. These sweet sons of guns won't ever let you down. The ingredients are all things you can get at a normal supermarket, and the instructions are easy to follow. On the expletive theme, the next site is whatthefuckshouldimakefordinner.com. It's a silly expletive-based browser for people who don't even know where to start. It's a very clean site, in appearance, at least. It always has a headline of some nonsense using the F-word, and it randomly proposes a recipe. When I just went on it, it proposed Asian scallion radish and cucumber salad with cashews and vermicelli. Underneath the recipe name, you have the option of clicking on I don't effing like that or I don't effing eat meat. If you click on the recipe name, it takes you to the recipe. Click on I don't effing like that and it'll propose a different recipe. Click on I don't effing eat meat and it only shows you vegetarian recipes from then on. And when only showing vegetarian recipes, that bottom link says I'm not an effing vegetarian. This one gets old after a while, but really, if you don't know where to start and you love the F word, it has some well curated recipes. My last suggestion was the Nutrition Diva at quickanddirtytips.com. This isn't a cooking site, but it's a great resource for clear, concise, honest, non-hysterical nutrition advice. It's also not terribly irreverent, but the site does occasionally demonstrate a dry wit. Monica Reinagle is smart, knowledgeable, and dare I say, totally dreamy. She's a trained opera singer, which is where the diva thing comes from, but you're rarely, if ever, subjected to singing. When researching my own nutrition advice, she's a go-to resource. And that's what I told Cav Esquire, and that's what I'm telling you. I have links to all three in the show notes. Thanks, Cav Esquire. You're a gentleman and a fucking scholar. And so we bring another action-packed episode of the Foodcast to an end. Apropos of everything, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening and supporting the show. If you haven't done so, please leave a review on iTunes. I know you people are out there. I see the ever-growing listening numbers. Share the love with your friends and I can keep on keeping on. If you can't get enough irreverent food learning and your tolerance for the F-word makes Thug Kitchen only so useful, consider subscribing to the Karma Sense Wellness Newsletter. This week I did an analysis of the myth... Did he say myth? The myth that sweet potatoes are morally, or at least nutritionally, superior to white potatoes. It's a potato war, and nary a potato gun was fired. I have a subscription form and all the other goodies I promised on the show notes at karmasciencewellness.com slash foodcast. Anyway, until next time, and also apropos of everything, remember what your old pal Bozo always says. What does your old pal Bozo always say? Just keep laughing. Yeah. <laughs>